Talking History. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for man. <laughs> Well, a very Merry Christmas to all our listeners on this Christmas morning. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. And on this Christmas morning, we're going to be taking a tour of the White House to find out about Christmas traditions and tales from the 19th century to the present. We'll hear about how Jackie Kennedy reshaped the holiday. We'll hear about the role of James Hoban, the Irishman, in designing it, the role of slaves in building it, and how different presidents, their wives and their families viewed the festivities. Wherever you are on this Christmas morning, we hope you're having a wonderful, peaceful and pleasant time. We hope all goes well for you and your family and loved ones. And I hope you'll enjoy this tour through some of the most interesting parts of White House Christmas traditions. And to lead us on this tour of the White House Christmas traditions and history, I'm delighted to be joined for the entire show by Lena Mann, who's the historian with the White House Historical Association. She joined in 2017 as American University's Public History Fellow and came on board as their historian in March 2020. And so I'm delighted to welcome Lena to the show. Uh, Lena, you're very welcome and Merry Christmas. Hi, Merry Christmas. Well, can I begin with the White House Christmas today in the 21st century? How exactly does the White House celebrate Christmas and what are the traditions that you see uh, all around you uh, in 2023? Yeah, so uh, we do have at the White House just a very, it's usually very much the same year to year, especially in this modern era. But this year, um, there is a theme, there usually is a theme, and the, the theme this year is Magic, Wonder, and Joy, um, which is inspired by children's experiences of the holiday season, so trying to capture uh, all of that. Um, this year, there are some 98 trees in the White House, some 34,000 ornaments, and 72 wreaths, so it's quite decorated. And then the feature uh, of a White House Christmas um, in the modern era is the big blue room tree. So uh, in the White House blue room, they usually have a very tall tree that features all the names of states and territories. This year's tree uh, is an 18.5 foot Fraser fir from North Carolina, and it does have a little toy train running below. So very exciting. And it includes the names of all the different uh, U.S. states and territories and everything on the tree. Correct. Yes. All of those will be featured on the tree. Um, so, yeah, all 50 states and then also all the territories as well. So talk to me about the ornaments then, because a lot of care and attention and thought goes into what they put on the ornaments. Yeah. So each year uh, when they're selecting that theme, essentially there's months and months and months of preparation that goes into uh, White House Christmas. They have to have time to get everything designed uh, and ready to go. So Usually, they'll put together new ornaments that will match the theme for the year. So I think to this year, because it is uh, this, this children's theme, there's lots of ornaments that reflect that. Um, they also do have storage facilities where they will uh, catalog and place all of these ornaments uh, after the holiday season. And sometimes they do end up using uh, past year's ornaments as well and bringing them back in. Um, so that happens, too. And it's the 200th anniversary of the poem by Clement Clark Moore, "'Twas the Night Before Christmas." So there are various editions of the poem uh, around uh, in the White House as well. Yes, correct. So uh, especially in one area of the White House, it does include those excerpts from uh, the night before Christmas. Uh, And then they also have um, on the ground floor corridor area uh, letters to Santa and various holiday messages. So all of those are included with those excerpts. Um, from that very famous poem. Talk to me about the China Room, because the China Room doesn't seem to be filled with China, or maybe there are things in addition to the China, because it has uh, lots more uh, uh, lots more goodies this year. <laughs> yeah, so the China Room this year is filled with a number of sweet treats, including cakes, cookies, and gingerbread. Uh, there is, I will say, a long history of gingerbread uh, structures and houses being used 
in White House decorations. That is something that's been going on uh, really since 1969 with the Nixon administration. So, yes, while there are still China pieces in that room, those will be displayed along the side of the room in um, glass cases. Uh, The room is filled with a number of other items as well. And I also think it's interesting the way military families are remembered. So, for example, in the Red Room, the ornaments have the handprints and, and portraits of different children of family members uh, who serve in the military. Yes, that is definitely an element of the modern um, 21st century White House celebrations. There, um, it's usually a way to honor military families, and typically the president and first lady will um, do something during the holiday season to honor those families. In addition to those red room ornaments and those handprints, um, there also is a gold star Christmas tree uh, as well, and this is engraved with the names of military servicemen that have died as well. So it's a way of honouring those who have lost loved ones as well as remembering those who are perhaps serving abroad. Yes, absolutely. And that is definitely a focus of the Biden administration for sure. Um, So that is uh, very exciting to see um, throughout the White House this year. And Santa's workshop gets a a shout out as well because the state dining room has a a mock-up of it with the different workbenches and stools and ladders and everything. Oh, yeah. So the state dining room is definitely one of my favorite rooms uh, decoration-wise during the holiday season. So, yes, Santa's workshop this year, uh, very exciting, uh, quite uh, intricately decorated. And then, of course, as I mentioned, they do have this giant replica uh, in gingerbread of the White House. Uh, And this is a very exciting tradition because way back when it started in 1969, uh, they just had a typical A-frame small gingerbread house. Um, But over the years, this tradition has really grown. Uh, And so by the 1990s, they were building these full-scale replicas of the White House in gingerbread. And each year, they try and represent the theme uh, and include that into these giant replicas as well. So not too good to eat during the holiday season, but very beautiful to see on that holiday tour. Well, I was just wondering about whether it does get eaten. What happens after Christmas? Does it get carved up and divided between the staff or or uh, does it, what, what exactly happens? That is a good question. I actually don't exactly know what happens to the gingerbread house specifically. What I do know is I don't think you would want to eat it at that point because it sits out uh, basically so everybody can see it for a good month. Uh, so maybe not the best uh, sweet treat to eat. Uh, and there's a lot of people that move through those rooms. So it seems like a huge amount of work goes into this. There are 98 trees, as you said, you know, over 30,000 ornaments, all of these, that, you know, never mind all the lights that get put up. How many people does it take to decorate the White House? It's a, it's a tough enough job in a, in a regular house, somewhere the size of the White House. This must be an incredible operation. Oh, yeah. So uh, as I mentioned earlier, the planning for this is months and months in advance. So uh, you really, uh, as soon as Christmas is over the previous year, you got to start planning for next year. So it's definitely a huge effort. Um, Usually the First Lady's office is very involved in these efforts, as well as um, various White House positions. Um, But also they do uh, bring in volunteers to help decorate for the holiday season. So um, people will sign up or uh, get drawn out of the lottery for that. Um, And then they get to come to the White House and help them uh, decorate. Usually the decorations go up in a very short amount of time. So uh, the accounts I've heard of people decorating for uh, Christmas and holidays at the White House, it is uh, all hands on deck situation. Uh, Everybody's running around. They're putting all this stuff together. uh, And it's done within just a matter of days um, and opened up for the public to see. And the First Lady Jill Biden uh, unveiled this year's theme, as you said, Magic, Wonder and Joy. And I'm wondering, you mentioned the First Lady's office there. Is a lot of this directed from the First Lady's office? And can you see a difference when there are uh, when there's a different president and a different First Lady? Do, do you see them putting their own stamp on it and, and bringing their own interests and, and uh, passions to bear? Yeah, I would say absolutely. So typically it is the First Lady uh, and her staff that ends up doing all the planning for this, and First Ladies will select a theme uh, for that year. Um, So you definitely do see that change over time. Now, 
Sometimes they are very classic designs, uh, you know, like the Nutcracker Suite has been done a couple times. So, so those typical holiday elements. But um, then First Ladies will also put their own personal touch and spin on it. So a good example of that, uh, in the past one year, um, Barbara Bush, former First Lady, ended up doing a tree on uh, children's literacy. And that was a big theme for that year because that was one of uh, the things that she um, championed as one of her causes as First Lady. So you do see that element appear. Why do you think the White House is so iconic for people, not just in the United States, but around the world? Is it something to do with the design of it? Is it the design of the Oval Office? Is it the fact that from the 20th century on, you know, this was the this was where the leader of the free world, as it was called, you know, uh, did did their work? Or is it something to do with the fact that it's it's always shown in it's shown in movies and television programs, the West Wing or various different dramas that we 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 kind of feel we know it, even if we've never visited it? Yeah, I think it's really a combo of all of the things that you just said. Um, it is within the United States and throughout the world, it is a symbol of American democracy. So I think that that is one of the most iconic images. And I think that its use consistently within pop culture has really cemented that, um, particularly in more recent years. Um, so all of that is certainly part of it. Um, we always talk about the fact that the White House serves uh, a, a bunch of different functions. So um, it is most notably an office. It is the president's office. He works out of the Oval Office. That's very iconic room um, that very well known, but also it is a home. So uh, since the time when John Adams moved in back in 1800, it has been the home of not only the president, but the first family as well. So that idea that it serves these multiple functions, but in addition to those two primary functions, it is also known as um, it is a stage, essentially. So it is a place for uh, America to show off the best of America at the White House. So lots of celebrations, lots of uh, state dinners and big events like that happening there um, and cultural events as well. Uh, and then in addition, it also is a museum space. Uh, it is um, conserved as and it does have curators involved and they take care very carefully of all of the objects and pieces of art and furnishings that are part of that White House collection. So the White House serves all of these different functions and then also is a symbol as well. Um, so I think really all of those things tie together and, and is why it is so well known um, throughout the world. And it is kind of mad to think that uh, an actual house becomes the centre of of so much activity because, of course, it isn't a big enough space for all of that. So I think, how does it work that there are offices underground and that it's it's a much bigger complex than the than the actual house itself? Yeah, so it, it's kind of interesting how it's developed over time. Initially, through much of the 19th century, everything that was happening in the White House is occurring in that main square building that you see most iconically. Um, so on the first floor, you have all these state rooms where they have all these official events. And then you have a, had a second floor in the White House, which during the 19th century was where the president not only lived, but also had his office and cabinet room. Over time, as the American government has expanded and has the presidency itself has become more defined and has emerged onto the world stage, uh, more space was needed for sure. So uh, during the uh, 1902, President Theodore Roosevelt does a huge renovation of the White House and he adds on what is known today as the West Wing. Um, so having all of those offices available um, to be used uh, really as office space. Um, there also technically are uh, underground floors of the White House today, um, and as well, they've also added a third floor um, to the top of the White House just to add more space um, for everyone. So there, it is a much larger complex than uh, it used to be, um, but I always think it's interesting whenever I bring people through the White House, they are struck by the fact that it is not a super large building. Uh, it, it is still a very small building in comparison, um, perhaps to some other sites around the world that serves different functions, uh, similar functions. And it was burnt in 1814 during the, the war with with Britain. And I wonder how destro how destroyed was it? How much had to be rebuilt? And was the, the, the redesigned White House then very different? Because I don't think it actually was coloured white in the early years. Yeah, so the evolution of that particular period of time is quite interesting. So 
you actually do see, um, so the White House is built of this very um, porous sandstone. So if you do not cover up that stone, it would take on water um, and would basically um, crumble. Uh, so since the late 1790s is the first example we have of them using essentially a white wash on the building. Um, so that does date very early. Um, but when the British burned the White House in 1814, they essentially sort of do it from the inside out. So um, things were piled up in a large bonfire inside, um, and then they did uh, basically fire things through the window. So a lot of the fire occurred inside the house, and the exterior was stone walls. So um, what happened after the fire is that you essentially still have the exterior of the building, but the entire interior of the building was destroyed. So when they reconstructed it, um, that meant that they were essentially having to redo the entire interior and a little bit of the exterior. But the, the big fact that it remains a pride point of the White House is that those exterior walls have always remained. Um, there was also another giant renovation, probably the biggest renovation since that burning um, between 1948 and 1952. And the White House at that point had been added on for so many years. It had wood. Um, wood was the initial structure used inside, and that was sort of rotting away, and it was collapsing in on itself, essentially. So they had to gut the entire thing. Um, all and The entire inside of the White House is gutted, taken out. Um, things are numbered and then reassembled after they reinforce the structure. So everything over time is usually built back in the same footprint, um, essentially, as that early um, James Hoban design from the 1790s with a few um, slight exceptions and uh, some maneuvering. But essentially, the building has remained um, the same layout um, fairly consistently since it was constructed back in uh, the 1790s. Very good. Lena, do you think that when a president has small children in the White House or perhaps grandchildren in the White House, does that make a difference? That Do they approach the way uh, Christmas is celebrated in a different, or is there a different kind of energy to it? Because I suspect that when you have uh, small people running around, uh, that perhaps makes a, a, a different atmosphere. Oh, absolutely. I think that that is definitely something that we can see uh, at the White House. When there are mostly adults involved, um, the, the celebrations have tended to be oh, a little bit on the smaller side. It's really when you have all those children involved that those celebrations get much larger. So that very first Christmas tree that we know about in the White House from 1889 uh, is done for Benjamin Harrison's grandchildren. He wants to celebrate with them, um, make sure they have a great holiday. And then I think we also see that with that fun Andrew Jackson story from 1835, where he hosts a big party for his grandchildren and they have a fun snowball fight. So I think when kids are involved, it's always more fun. I think that that stands true of just about everybody's holiday celebrations. Uh, when you have a kid involved, it just it really captures that holiday magic. Well, maybe let's go back in time. Now, we can go back uh, in time all the way to the to the start of the White House, but maybe let's just go back to the 1960s first and when Jackie Kennedy was First Lady. And of course, there's the wonderful Irish connection uh, through her husband, John F. Kennedy. But I think she played a major role in, in, in the evolution of these Christmas traditions. And she played a particularly significant role because you mentioned again the Nutcracker. I think, was she the first person who, who had that as a theme? Yes, exactly. So uh, Jacqueline Kennedy uh, is well known to us because she is the founder, uh, helped found the White House Historical Association. Um, so we're big fans of Jacqueline Kennedy over here, uh, as well as that a fun Irish connection. Um, so she did begin the tradition of selecting a theme for that Blue Room Christmas tree. And she started doing that uh, in 1961. Um, and so she did use Nutcracker Suite that year, a very classic Christmas design. Uh, and then it sort of um, built out from there. So in the years since then, uh, they always select a theme uh, and they always do decorate that Blue Room tree uh, specifically to that theme as well. So she had Nutcracker for the first year, but the second year, I thought it was very interesting, used different types of, of, of packaging and used candy cakes and gingerbread and ornaments, but they were all made by, by either uh, elderly craftspeople or people with disabilities all across the United States. Yeah, so she did, she did that as well. And that is something that we've seen in um, subsequent First Ladies too. So there have been many examples of um, bringing in groups from across the United States. A lot of times they'll have children design ornaments 
uh, or uh, or other individuals, sometimes um, military families. Like, there's just a really wide variety of people that get involved with this, um, and they'll send ornaments to the White House for that purpose. And is it true that the chandelier has to be removed from the Blue Room to allow this gigantic Christmas tree to be put in? <laughs> yes, usually the trees are quite tall. So this year's tree is uh, 18 and a half feet tall. Um, so that that means that they do have to do some adjustments in those spaces. So that chandelier uh, sometimes has to move um, specifically for that tree because it goes right into the center of the room. Um, so it does become a, a bit of a space issue. And I could see how when there is a good idea and it works and people love it, it gets reused then every few years. But are there ideas that are attempted that perhaps don't work, that it might have been a good idea on paper, but they just can't pull it off or it doesn't quite work when when it actually is realised? <laughs> well, I would say that there are some very interesting trees uh, and scenes from the 1970s. Uh, at one point, they had done um, a sort of a doll theme, which I'm sure was really fun at the time, but sometimes looking back at these historic photos, they do look a little bit creepy. Maybe not the best execution, uh, but today we see generally um, very typical Christmas designs, um, and I haven't seen anything not work uh, in the past few years, for sure. In 1975, there was a Christmas tree made out of cranberries for the Red Room. Yes. So that's one of my favorite elements of the White House um, tradition. So that, that, that cranberry tree gets done every year. Usually they have to make two of them. So essentially um, they use like a styrofoam cone underneath and then um, cranberries get pinned around the edges. But um, because they sit in uh, the Red Room for, you know, basically a month, they have to make some backup trees as well uh, because those cranberries do get soft. Um, but that is a really fun tradition. Um, and we've seen that cranberry tree theme used a couple times um, throughout the years, for sure. How central is religion when Christmas is being celebrated? Because, of course, Christmas would be certainly originally and primarily a Christian tradition, but of course, celebrated by people of all religions and none or many people would celebrate it. Uh, was there attempts in more recent years to to make it a, a tradition and a holiday that would appeal to people of all different faiths and none? Yeah, so I would say that um, specifically in recent years, there has been more of an effort to broaden out um, the holiday traditions at the White House to include um, things like Hanukkah. So um, back in 1979, um, President Jimmy Carter was the first to uh, light um, the National Menorah, um, which occurred outside of the White House. Um, and then um, much more recently, um, they usually we'll do um, Hanukkah celebrations at the White House and invite members of the Jewish community. So there is an effort um, to make it multicultural um, and make it uh, uh, span various religions and cultures. I would say that the Christmas theme in general, um, while based on a Christian holiday, is much more, uh, it's widened to include just holiday cheer in general. So it's not specifically tied to religion. I would say that the biggest element of that in the White House is there is a crash scene that is set up in the White House East Room each year, um, and that has been a fairly consistent tradition since the 1960s. Lena, can we go back in time to the, to the earliest Christmases in the White House? How much do we know about that and how, how really was Christmas celebrated? Because I'm sure it was probably on a much smaller scale. Yes, absolutely, on a much smaller scale. So I would say that Christmas is very different in the 19th century. Um, it is a much more private family holiday, especially in those early years. Um, some families may have decorated the house with very simple greens and wreaths, um, but other than that, certainly not what we see today. Um, there is a account of the very first White House Christmas party to be held, and that occurred in December of 1800. So really just after um, President John Adams moves into the White House and becomes the first president to live there. Um, but this was a little Christmas party that was held um, for their four-year-old granddaughter uh, who was living with them. And that was just a small party. It had uh, invited government officials and their children to that particular event. And how much do we know about what someone like uh, Thomas Jefferson got up to? Because he's seen as this, you know, huge innovator and, uh, uh, you know, from the Declaration of Independence to the swivel chair. But did he have any anything to, to bring or to add to the way Christmas was celebrated? You know, I although he had a lot of uh, accomplishments and offered a lot 
I don't think that he's really well known for his Christmas celebrations. Um, he very much likely celebrated very privately um, with family members um, and just those that were around him. Um, we really do see a transition, I'd say, in the latter half of the 19th century um, to uh, people celebrating in a way that we would consider today to be more normal. Um, so, so it's something that definitely develops over time, for sure. Because even the idea of a Christmas tree, that was, I think, a, a much later development. It wouldn't have been a, a thing for people to even have a Christmas tree. Yes, correct. So the very first example that we have um, known, so there potentially could have been something earlier, but the first known example uh, is a Christmas tree placed uh, on in the second floor um, during Benjamin Hen- uh, Harrison's administration, which was in 1889. So he had grandchildren, um, and so he decorated a tree with candles um, for those grandchildren at the White House. So that's a lot later. Um, so we do have the first the first half of the century really um, is, is just a lot different than what we would consider Christmas celebration. Uh, well, especially when you look at the seventh president, Andrew Jackson, because uh, he's, well, had a great reputation for being, you know, the man who, who uh, you know, stood up for what he believed in, you know, liked to argue, liked to fight and uh, organised a snowball fight, an indoor snowball fight. Uh, I think it's 1835. Well, now they were firing uh, cotton balls around, but he certainly seems to, to know and, and to have known how to make it a, an entertaining Christmas. Oh, that's for sure. Andrew Jackson is definitely well known for the various entertainments um, that he hosted at the White House. And that 1835 uh, frolic was really quite fun. So Andrew Jackson had a lot of children in his household, um, not direct descendant children, but um, he had various adopted children and their children all around him. So very much a a family guy, and he really enjoyed uh, hanging out with those kids. And so that frolic that he hosted in 1835 was really for the kids and included games, dancing, a very grand dinner. And then, yes, uh, the event ended with a large indoor snowball fight where they assembled little cotton balls um, as the snowballs for the interior. Do we know anything about what happened during the Civil War, the years of the Civil War, 1861 to 1865? Were things much more subdued then, given that the country was, well, torn apart, fighting brother against brother? brother. It was the presidency of Abraham Lincoln. Do we know exactly what or how Christmas was celebrated in those years? Yeah, so I would say that during those years of the Civil War, certainly a more somber Christmas um, than what we would know today, Um, particularly the first uh, few years of the administration. um, The Union was not doing as well as Abraham Lincoln would have liked in the war. um, And so just you know, not quite as celebratory. However, by 1864, um, there's certainly more to celebrate. Uh, in that year, the Union Army is doing much better. Um, and so th- there are some Christmas parties and receptions hosted that year. Uh, and then there's a really fun story of um, Christmas Day in 1864. Uh, President Lincoln's son, Tad, uh, invited some local newsboys that he knew from around town to the White House for Christmas dinner. Uh, and the Lincolns uh, happily accepted the children uh, for that dinner. Uh, it seems that maybe the chefs may not have known that there would have been uh, some extra mouths to feed, um, but they were graciously accepted uh, and hosted for that that particular dinner. Teddy Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt, at the start of the, the 20th century is a fascinating figure. He's a fascinating president, but he's also fascinating when it comes to, to Christmas because he didn't like the idea of a Christmas tree because he was a, a conservationist. So I'm going to throw a little bit of a wrench into that story because um, we have done some research on this because uh, we thought it was really interesting. And we think that that is more mythological than actually factual. Um, And this is because uh, of this idea of a Christmas tree just not being as common until um, the turn of the century. So we think that 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 may have been more of the issue there. Uh, It it is a great story to say that um, he believes in conservation and all of this. Um, He doesn't traditionally celebrate Christmas with a tree, um, but I don't think it was specifically because of that. And there is a really fun story from uh, 1902 where his son, Archie, apparently uh, sneaks a small little tree into the White House and hides it in an upstairs closet. Um, And then he reveals the tree to the family and starts a new family tradition. Um, But 
I, again, I don't think that it is exactly quite um, what we are thinking about uh, when we say that he didn't have Christmas trees because he was a conservationist. I think it's more that the idea of a Christmas tree was a little bit new at the time. This is brilliant. We love debunking uh, stories on Talking History. So even if it's Christmas, we still have to debunk uh, some of these uh, myths that have developed. But but it is a, a hilarious anecdote about the son, Archie, bringing in the hidings, the, this this tree and putting <laughs> lit candles on it and almost like causing a, 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 a an incident with it. Uh, well, let's go forward then to the, the 1920s and, and Calvin Coolidge, because he seems to have have introduced a number of, 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 of elements that then became part of the regular Christmas season in the White House, including a, a tree lighting ceremony, um, you know, making it public that you would celebrate the spirit of Christmas and uh, broadcasting a, a message to the country that uh, this seems to all then have, have become part of the, the regular tradition. Yeah, I would say that his first national Christmas tree lighting was quite significant for that. It was something that would have been broadcast at the time uh, over the radio, um, and people would have heard uh, his Christmas message. And this is a very consistent tradition. So uh, actually, this year, it's uh, uh, this was started back in 1923, so it's 2023 this year. So really, we're celebrating 100 years of this particular tree lighting tradition. Um, the tree itself for this tree lighting is not located directly on the White House grounds, but a little bit south um, of what's known as the White House Ellipse. Um, so that is uh, that has historically been a live tree at various points, although this year um, in the news there was uh, that tree did die, and so they had to have another tree brought in. Um, and stood up there, but then it was really windy the day that they were uh, putting it up. So there was a little bit of panic uh, around town here uh, where they weren't quite sure whether that tree would stand up, but luckily the wind died down and they did get that standing and they did light the tree a couple weeks back. So that particular tradition is definitely still ongoing today and uh, it is definitely an opportunity for the president to address the nation um, and give a little uh, speech as he lights the tree, um, you know, highlighting the spirit of the season um, and coming together and uh, all of that. So what happened then with his successor, Herbert Hoover? Because, of course, he was the president for the first years of the Depression. His successor then was Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR, who who helped take America out of the Depression and, of course, was president for, well, that extraordinary long period from, you know, March 1933 until his death in 1945. And that was a period that that covered both the the Depression and uh, the entry into the, the Second World War. So... What was Christmas like then in this very much a changing America where you had the Depression and then you had the Second World War? Yeah, so right at the tail end of the Hoover administration, there actually is a a fire um, in the West Wing um, that occurs on Christmas Eve uh, of 1929. And that was a pretty uh, wild and significant moment. Um, Essentially, the, the Hoovers were having a holiday party over in the White House celebrating the season. Uh, and then uh, the president receives word that there is this fire that has gone on um, over in the West Wing. So a lot of that area ended up being burned uh, and they had to bring in um, several fire trucks all on Christmas Eve. They did get the fire out and they were able to rebuild very quickly. Um, but that was just sort of a, a crazy Christmas moment um, that occurred at the tail end of the Hoover administration. But as you move into um, Franklin Roosevelt's presidency, um, you do see him celebrating a very family-centric Christmas, um, which during the Great Depression and World War II, I'm sure it was um, just a, a nice model for the nation um, to show that family celebration moment. Um, Fr- Franklin Roosevelt had a number of children and grandchildren that would celebrate with him at the White House, and he also is our president that has celebrated the most at the White House. Um, he celebrated, he was in the White House for 12 years, um, and he celebrated 10 of his Christmases uh, actually at the White House. The final two he did spend up in Hyde Park, uh, in New York, at his personal home, but for the majority of them, he was at the White House. So his Christmases typically followed um, a, a, a fairly standard pattern. So um, on Christmas Eve, usually they had a ho- a, hosted a party for White House staff. 
Um, staff members usually got a, a small gift, and I love the 1940 gift. In 1940, they gave out a little keychain of um, Franklin Roosevelt's very popular dog, Fala, um, and people really enjoyed that. Um, and then he would also decorate a tree with candles for his children and grandchildren, and then he would also read um, the classic Charles Dickens book, uh, A Christmas Carol, uh, to his family as well. And we do have some really great photographs. Uh, of those uh, events of him just reading to his grandchildren. On Christmas morning, they would all gather, open in their stockings in the president's bedroom. Um, and then later on, they would uh, attend various Christmas services. They would do a gift exchange. Um, and then during World War II, actually, when he was celebrating at Hyde Park, um, he did actually deliver a fireside chat um, for Christmas that year. Um, so, so just definitely uh, wanting to model um, his family and I think give an insight to that um, for the nation, uh, especially in the light of all of the um, things that are happening in the world at that time. And from what you're saying, it definitely sounds like FDR loved loved Christmas, loved spending it with his family and with friends and loved ones, loved spending it in the White House. And it, I suppose it, it makes me wonder, were there other presidents who it didn't mean as much to and who enjoyed getting out of the White House and maybe going to a family home or somewhere else uh, for the holiday? Yeah, I think specifically in more recent years, I think it's been more popular um, presidents they will spend much of December at the White House and they'll host holiday parties and open the White House and have people come through, all of that. But the actual Christmas holiday, um, many presidents tend to spend it away from the White House. And I think that's just a function of uh, the fact that they they need a little break and they need a little time alone with their family. So we've got some really uh, exciting Christmas destinations. One of my favorites is um, uh, Gerald Ford and his family, they loved to go out to Vail, Colorado and go skiing. Um, so they would go out there every year. And apparently they had to always check and see uh, with their secret service who is able to ski uh, so that they could be out on the slopes with the president and the first family. So um, that was a really fun one. Uh, also, President Carter um, liked to spend, he spent several of his Christmases um, up at Camp David, the presidential retreat that's located out in Maryland. Um, so that's a very much a more secluded private space. Uh, and I think a lot of presidents and first families really enjoy spending that time just away from the White House of uh, and and having more of a private moment. And that reminds me, this year's uh, White House uh, Christmas decoration is uh, remembering the Gerald Ford presidency. Every year, there's a special ornament produced that you can buy online. I, I remember at the American Embassy here, I think I, I, I did an event and I got the FDR one and then I, I began collecting some of them afterwards and I have the JFK one and some of the others. But it is a, it is a fascinating way of connecting with the history and connecting with some former president. Yeah, absolutely. So the official White House Christmas ornament is something that the White House Historical Association, my organization, has done uh, for many, many years now. So we started back in the early 1980s with an ornament honoring um, President uh, George Washington. Uh, and we've been moving chronologically through time uh, throughout the years. So each year features a different president, or there have been a couple years where we have instead um, commemorated a special event uh, or something like that. But usually it follows through each presidency. Um, so right now we've worked our way all the way up to Gerald Ford and our ornament this year is a beautiful wreath um, that honors the Ford presidency. And on the back, there are several emblems related um, to Gerald Ford, including um, his uh, football number from when he played football in college for University of Michigan. Um, it also includes uh, his dog, Liberty, um, and just some fun, uh, fun elements of the Ford presidency. And Herbert Hoover mightn't be remembered as one of the greatest presidents, uh, but he does have a wonderful ornament because it's a motor car, and that's one that I have on my tree. A fire truck, I think it is. Yeah. I do think that our transportation ornaments have been quite popular. One of my personal favorites is um, from a couple years ago, we did um, the Eisenhower ornament. Uh, President uh, Eisenhower was the first to use um, the presidential helicopter today we know as Marine One. Um, and so we did uh, an ornament that was a design of that that particular helicopter and people really enjoyed that one. I do actually also have the helicopter. I don't have all of them. I only have about three or four, but the helicopter is a beautiful. So, and, and people can buy them. You know, uh, you just go on the, the White House Historical Association website and you can get them and get them sent over. Correct. They do ship by Christmas. 
um, in most cases, and they are also available after the season too. Um, so feel free to order them at any time. Is there a personal favourite story that you have about a particular president or first lady or administration where they have done something that really uh, made you fall in love with uh, that tradition and made you think, well, that was brilliant what they did? (laughs) Well, this year, since we have been honouring Ford, uh, my colleagues and I have done a lot of research on the Ford presidency. Uh, And one of my favourite stories that I found um, from them was, so the when Gerald Ford becomes president, uh, he becomes president in 1974, and it is under um, some unexpected circumstances. He didn't expect to ascend to the presidency. Um, so they really do uh, get that Christmas celebration all together. Um, but one of my favorite elements of that is uh, their Blue Room tree that year um, came from the state of Michigan, President Ford's home state. Uh, and so he gave a little speech at a Christmas ball um, where he uh, he basically stated that um, the that he, neither that tree nor him expected to be in the White House that year, um, but they were both there and they were ready to celebrate the holiday season. So I really I enjoyed that attitude uh, from Gerald Ford, um, and you know just sort of making light of his situation um, and you know celebrating with the nation um, with a good sense of humor. Lena, of course, the White House itself has a wonderful Irish tradition or an Irish connection going back to James Hoban, the architect who designed it. Yes, absolutely. So James Hoban is that architect of the White House. Um, He is born in Ireland, um, does learn some architecture over there, and then uh, immigrates to the United States. He spent some time uh, down in South Carolina and designs um, some homes and uh, buildings there. And then he comes up to Washington, D.C., where he builds the president's house. Um, And the way that this comes about is back in 1792, as President George Washington is um, trying to plan out this new federal city that that is today known as Washington, D.C., he decides to have a contest uh, for the design of the house. So uh, people can submit their designs. Uh, Apparently, uh, Thomas Jefferson, who was Secretary of State for President Washington at the time, even submitted his own design. Um, But uh, it was the design from uh, James Hoban that got selected, uh, and then he oversaw the initial construction from 1792 to 1800. Um, And then he oversees construction again once more uh, after the British burned the White House in 1814. So they bring him back on board uh, to rebuild the home and get it all set up again. And of course, there's a darker element to the story of the construction of the White House. And I know you've done some wonderful work on this um, because, of course, enslaved people were used in that construction. Yes, correct. So uh, the the labor force constructing the White House uh, was actually quite diverse. So um, there were uh, various Scottish stonemasons and other um, skilled laborers brought in from overseas to help uh, help build the house. Um, there were also free white wage laborers involved, but there also was a very large um, portion of uh, enslaved African Americans um, that did build the home. Most of those individuals come um, from either uh, Northern Virginia or Southern Maryland from plantations um, in that area, and then they were sent up um, to the capital city uh, where they lived in various barracks um, and small buildings uh, right in front of the staging ground for the White House. And they helped construct not only the White House, but also the Capitol building as well. So, of course, in this day and age, and we've talked about it on various different shows about how countries and institutions come to terms with the legacy, how, I suppose, because you don't want to knock down the White House, how do you, I suppose, balance the the, the the history, is it by contextualising it? Is it by making sure that it's understood and referenced and not hiding away from it? How do you, I suppose, you tell that part of the story and make sure it's not airbrushed out? Yeah, that's a great question. So myself and my colleagues have spent a lot of time uh, in recent years researching uh, slavery at the White House, um, not only related to construction, but also enslaved people that um, lived and worked at the White House through various presidential administrations. Um, We do know that essentially nine presidents uh, utilized enslaved labor at the White House. Um, And so we have really worked hard 
um, to tell their stories, make sure we return their stories to the historical forefront, um, and talk about some of those individuals. So back in 2020, my team, um, we launched an initiative called Slavery in the President's Neighborhood, and that captures um, tons of stories, and we've written a ton of research articles about all of these individuals. So um, not just about presidents, but about some of those people um, that we are able to know about. Um, For example, um, Thomas Jefferson, he uh, utilized enslaved labor at the White House. He had um, three enslaved teenage chefs uh, that would have lived and worked in the home. Um, And luckily for uh, historians, he leaves behind a ton of documents that help us to piece together some of those stories uh, and, and actually talk about them and know their names and know their family histories. Um, so that has been something that my team has been very involved in uh, and something that we really work hard to balance. The White House itself, of course, is a very national symbol. Um, it symbolizes American democracy, um, but we also have to grapple with this juxtaposition um, of, of those early years um, and and I think all of this just helps us to tell a more complete story. Uh, we always talk about the White House as the people's house. Um, and so I think it's appropriate that the White House reflects the American people. And we try to tell um, stories that, that do reflect um, everyone involved. And it is, of course, such an iconic building. How many people visit the White House each year? And I suppose how many visit it during the holiday season? It is thousands a year um, that do visit the White House. Uh, And then during the Christmas season, it is a lot of individuals. So essentially, um, the White House runs public tours uh, fairly frequently throughout the years. Um, Those have to be booked. If you're an American citizen, you have to go through your congressman in order to uh, get tickets to go into the White House um, and see inside. And if you're an international visitor, you have to go uh, and do that through um, your own embassy, um, something like that. So so there are tons of people that do visit. It's just a little bit tricky to arrange those visits. But I also will say that during the Christmas season, um, the White House makes sure to really open their doors, um, and they do host a number of not only public tours, but special holiday tours as well um, to make sure people can get in there, can celebrate that holiday season um, and see all of the fantastic decorations. I'm delighted to be talking to Lena Mann of the White House Historical Association as we take a tour of the White House over the centuries and looking at the development of these various different Christmas traditions. Lena, if we look at the last five presidencies, you know, we had uh, Bill Clinton, George Bush, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and now up to Joe Biden. Biden, you know, five very different people, very different presidencies. Have we seen Christmas celebrated differently under these different presidencies? I would say that actually what is intriguing to me is that it has remained quite similar um, throughout all of these five presidencies. As you've mentioned, they're very different people, um, but that that the White House is this place that does have all these traditions and those traditions are quite important. And I think that that's one of the most interesting elements of the White House um, as it has developed over time uh, is that no matter who the president is, um, these traditions do remain fairly consistent once they're established. So um, throughout those presidencies, we've seen a lot of the same thing. Um, Some of the things I've mentioned earlier, so we always have a crash scene uh, in the East Room. Um, There's always this White House gingerbread design that's usually featured in the state room. Um, There's usually that blue room tree with all of those uh, fantastic ornaments representing each of the 50 states. Um, There's usually a lot of trees uh, throughout the White House, 98 this year. Um, And then also, as we've talked a little bit about um, in more recent years, uh, there have been efforts to really honor some of those military families um, and and the armed forces as well, and usually having a tree or some ornaments uh, to reflect that. Um, now, each president and first lady puts their own personal touch on it, so their their decorations might look quite different. I know that um, what I've noticed during the Biden administration is they do they have for the past few years really um, catered some of their decor uh, to children, and that's certainly the case this year, Um, whereas during the Trump presidency, uh, their decorations were a lot more modern in design um, and very interesting 
uh, scapes that they put up. So, so some differences for sure in the decorations, but I do think that there is a lot of consistency. I love the way you can take the the history of a building or the history of a of an event and and almost tell the history of the country to it. And and I think you could probably do something similar by looking at Christmas traditions in the White House because you very much get a sense of a changing United States, a changing world in the way even changing technologies in the way in the way that Christmas has been celebrated, even the way uh, different religions are involved and the way different traditions are included, that you do get a sense of a changing world. Oh, absolutely. I think that the history of the White House in general tells the story of the United States as it moves through time. But I also think that you can definitely see that um, with the Christmas traditions. In those early years, um, as we talked about, it's much more... uh, small events, much more family-oriented. And at the time, the United States is a smaller nation. It's trying to figure its place in the world. Now, uh, in the 21st century, the White House uh, has a very prominent space on the world stage. Uh, And so it's very important for presidents to open up that house, uh, show how they celebrate these holidays, include a lot of different cultures, include a lot of different uh, religious celebrations, Um, and celebrate all different types of people. So I do really think um, that these uh, celebrations do model uh, America and the nation. Um, And we've seen it go through a number of tough times. So we've seen the White House um, through things like the Great Depression and uh, World War II, but still celebrating Christmas in the home. Uh, We see uh, a lot of those military families being honored at the White House in the aftermath of 9-11 and the war uh, in the Middle East. Um, And... uh, even in more recent years, we did see very a smaller scaling back of various holiday celebrations at the White House um, during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, so you do see that, that change and shift throughout time as well. I know Christmas, we talk about a lot, but I will say that the, the idea of Hanukkah at the White House has really um, broadened out within recent years. Um, so one of the things that I really uh, enjoy about how the White House has celebrated Hanukkah throughout the last 20 years or so has been that they really do collaborate closely with the Jewish community on those celebrations. And one of the really interesting elements is that for many years they would um, have a, a menorah each year that has some historical significance or significance to the Jewish community um, used at the White House uh, to celebrate that occasion. So uh, I always think that that's just a really nice um, additional element in addition to all of the Christmas uh, decorations and everything that goes on um, to also honor other cultures and other religions as well. And finally, Lena, is there anything that you would like to see changed in terms of, is there a part of it that do you think needs to be brought into the 21st century or if you could develop one new or invent one new tradition for the White House, what would it be? (laughs) That's a great question. Well, I myself am uh, a big fan of Thanksgiving at the White House. uh, And and that is because I am a big fan of the uh, idea of the White House turkey pardon, which is essentially quite a silly tradition, but uh, they every year present a bird uh, to the president and the president pardons the bird. Um, Usually there's a lot of uh, Christmas poultry as well. And so I think it would also be fun uh, to do a little uh, Christmas turkey pardon as well. That's just a very personal uh, one for me because I'm such a big fan of that, that tradition. Well, it's been absolutely brilliant talking to Lena Mann of the White House Historical Association about the very different uh, traditions and uh, histories that we see by looking at the White House. And Lena, thank you so much for this tour. Absolutely. Well, that has been a very enjoyable uh, look at various different traditions and over the centuries there looking at the White House and some wonderful decorations as well that you can order from the White House Historical Association commemorating different presidents every year. Well, that does bring us to the end of this special Christmas edition of Talking History. We're going to be back on New Year's Eve where we're going to be looking at the life, work and music of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. So make sure you join us then. My thanks to my producer Marise O'Sullivan for all her brilliant work during the year to Peter Malloy who has always been so reliable and so good on sound and we've got lots more fun debate discussion and history in the weeks and months ahead so wherever you are this Christmas have a very peaceful and pleasant and wonderful time we've been talking history good night and Merry Christmas